Hello and welcome to A Cup of Atmospheric Science with me, Eric Saboya. And joining me today is Professor Matt Rigby from the University of Bristol, who is here to talk a little bit about CFC 11 emissions. Uh, welcome, Matt. Hello, Eric. <laughs> um, so I guess, first of all, would you like to talk a little bit about what you do and your research? Sure. Um, so I am a professor here at the University of Bristol. Um, I've been working here for just over a decade now, and my work is all about trying to understand um, the sources of, and sinks of greenhouse gases and ozone-depleting substances. I guess ozone-depleting substances is kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, so some of your work has also contributed towards these ozone depletion assessment reports. So I've, I've mentioned this before, um, but probably not very well. Uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about what goes into these reports and what what are they about essentially yeah sure um yeah so i i was a lead author in the um, most recent uh, scientific assessment of ozone depletion which came out just a few weeks ago um and then i was also a lead author in the uh, on the 2018 uh, report so um so these reports are to provide parties to the montreal protocol with scientific updates related to ozone depletion so every four years um the scientific assessment panel of the um, of the Montreal Protocol convenes a team of researchers from around the world, and we all have to look at various different aspects of the science related to ozone depletion, and um, summarise what's happened in the last four years. So it's a, a little bit like the IPCC reports, but for, but, but yeah. for ozone. Exactly. Okay, but it's, I don't know. It's always kind of interesting. Like the IPCC ones in, in the media, you have big coverage, and it's always on front pages of the news. But I guess this one for some reason i don't know do you, any thoughts why that might be or um yeah it's 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 a lot more low key than um than the ipcc reports um i think it's partly reflective of the fact that um it's a smaller community you know there are thousands and thousands of people who do climate research and um hundreds who contribute to those ipcc assessments um the the community looking at ozone depletion is it's quite a bit smaller, but it probably also reflects the timeline of where we are with um, with the ozone depletion story. You know, the, back in the 80s and 90s, I'm sure these reports would have been a lot more um, newsworthy because you know the, the the ozone hole and ozone depletion was was a big story at the time. And For sure. as action has been taken, um, and thankfully as emissions of things like CFCs have started to decline, um, maybe the it's become a slightly less newsworthy, with some exceptions. Yeah, which we are here to talk about. Okay. Um, so I guess, first of all, what is ex what exactly is a CFC? And I guess, where do they come from? Yeah, so CFC, it stands for chlorofluorocarbon. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, so CFCs were um, in industrially developed in the 20s and 30s. Um, and initially, they were they were used in applications like refrigeration, um, okay. and then increasingly as propellants for things like hairsprays. So back when I was growing up, that was that was what you tended to think about when you thought about CFCs was spraying gunk in your hair. Um, but they're also used for things like manufacturing um, insulating foam that you've probably seen in buildings. Um, and so yeah, so over the decades, the concentrations of these compounds have increased in the atmosphere um, and then around it was around the the 1970s 
1980s where people started to realize that maybe these things weren't the kind of benign you know inflammable okay. refrigerants that we'd we'd thought they were so it's quite a delay then between these substances being created so I actually have I sort of have in my preparation for this a few notes so there was this publication I found in 32 that kind of listed some of these properties of CFC saying they're non-flammable non-explosive chemically stable not absorbed by food which I guess it kind of all links to this idea of being a refrigerant or but I guess there was no con immediate connection then with what was being sprayed with what would happen in the atmosphere into I guess the 70s um at what point do you think that do you know roughly when that connection to exactly to ozone depletion was made with yeah so well so it's interesting if you look at the scientific literature on cfcs um one of the first big papers on cfcs was um written by jim lovelock who is most famous for the gaia hypothesis so he um one of his many contributions to science was the development of a instrument called the electron capture detector which could measure CFCs at, at incredibly small concentrations that they are in the atmosphere. Um, and so he wrote a paper in 1971, something like that, saying that um, with, with measurements in, in, the, in the North Atlantic, um, and one of the lines from that paper says something like, these CFCs pose no conceivable threat to the environment. So um, even though he'd detected them in the atmosphere, he'd shown that they must be accumulating it wasn't really thought that there could be any environmental impacts associated so, with it. It's a bit of a Chekhov's gun in... Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, he quickly, I guess, <laughs> came to realise that probably wasn't true, that line at least. Um, so in, in 1974, um, two chemists at um, uh, University of California, uh, Irvine, uh, Sherry Rowland and, and Mario Molina, proposed that CFCs could be a source of chlorine to the stratosphere. Now, it was already known that chlorine in the stratosphere could participate in what we call catalytic cycles that destroy ozone. So a catalytic cycle is something where you, you, know, you add some compound to a system and then that compound is not itself used up, but it destroys or participates in some of the chemical reactions along the way. So once chlorine gets up into the stratosphere, it can eat away at ozone that's up there but this chlorine then is released again in that process. So the chlorine can go on to, to destroy thousands and thousands of ozone molecules. Oh, wow. So it's really one and taking out absolutely low. So even if the concentrations are quite small in the atmosphere, the effect is just enormous. It, can be, quite, yeah. it can be quite large. Um, and so there are natural sources of chlorine. Um, so it, when this mechanism was first proposed, you know, in the, um, well, 60s, 70s, um, it wasn't enormously it wasn't enormously worrying in fact at the time when this catalytic these catalytic catalytic loss cycles were first proposed people were more worried about um nitrogen compounds being released in the stratosphere okay. um because at the time there was a lot of interest in supersonic flight and supersonic aircraft would fly in the stratosphere and the thought was these aircraft might be releasing nitrogen compounds and and destroying ozone that way um but it was really in 1974 when Molina and Rowland wrote this paper suggesting that CFCs could be a source of chlorine, an additional man-made source of chlorine, that um, that people started to worry. Okay. And then uh, I guess as a result of that, 
we ended up with the Montreal Protocol, right? Or was there still there well, was a bit it, of a gap between? Yeah, so so the Montreal so the, that, that paper came out in 1974, and the Montreal Protocol was signed in 1987, um, and it's um. You know, I'm not a historian of, of that particular period, but there does seem to have been some familiar themes that happened familiar to people who've looked at the climate debate. There was a period of denial by the, you know, the, the chemical producers. Um, there, were, there was some time before the, as it was called, the Molina-Roland hypothesis gained general acceptance. Um, but actually, probably the biggest single um, event that occurred was the identification of the ozone hole, because the Molina-Roland hypothesis didn't necessarily predict that there would be this, you know, enormous loss of ozone that we see over the Antarctic. It kind of predicted a more general decline in ozone. Um, but in in the um, mid 1980s, the group at the British Antarctic Survey, um, who were making routine measurements of ozone over Antarctica, they showed that their measurements had, had shown a, a dramatic decline, you know, a decline of about a third in the total amount of ozone oh my gosh. Yes. Um, that, that was occurring every springtime over Antarctica. And so that wasn't really expected by the scientists or by industry or by policymakers. And I think, um, I think that, that event of that suddenly being identified probably really... Um, shook everyone into action and probably more than anything that's what really spurred action to to get the montreal protocol oh, wow. signed. so it was a so actually just sort of looping back then quickly the denialism part that to me seems so odd with something that is so obviously artificially made right because okay as wrong as they are with the carbon dioxide and the other sort of greenhouse gas deniers you can you can sort of see where a badly made argument can be formed but even with with this, it were arguments were just like, no, it's not us. It's a different industry, or actually, there's an were they saying there's a natural source? Or well, I think um, at the time, you know, it was more that um, people didn't know if this was necessarily happening. It was a theory that had been proposed, you know, a kind of desk study. Okay. The Melina Rowland paper was, um, and so industry, I think, was more just saying, okay, that's an interesting hypothesis, but it's not what happens in the real world. Sure. Okay. So, so it took a while before that connection got made to what was actually happening in the, happening in the atmosphere. Yeah. So um, it, it took um, essentially, well, there were a whole variety of studies that ended up supporting um, this this theory, but it was really the aircraft measurements that were made up in the stratosphere that showed, you know, the presence of chlorine, enhanced chlorine participating in these these cycles that um, that kind of proved that this was really happening in that way. Okay, and then led all to the Montreal Protocol Ultimately, being formed. Yep. And I guess since then, emissions of at least CFC 11, which we are talking about, um, they've kind of, I guess, sort of peaked and then declined pretty much since since then globally. Um, so I guess one one question that perhaps listeners might interest me in, how do we actually monitor this decrease in CFC 11s? Yeah, so, um, so there are... There are two main global efforts to um, to to track ozone depleting substances in the long over the long periods of time. One is um, by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the U.S., um, and then the other one, the one that I'm most closely affiliated with, is called the Advanced Global Atmospheric Gases Experiment. So that's a international consortium um, 
primarily run by um, or funded by NASA in the US, but also funded by national funding agencies around the world. Um, so we here in Bristol run two of the A-Gage monitoring sites, one on the west coast of Ireland and one in Barbados. Um, but there are measurements made at locations all the way around the world. Um, and so the A-Gage network started in a in one form or another um, back in 1978, so before I was born. So oh, I, wow. You know, <laughs> um, it's, been, it's been going on for over 40 years now. Um, and with the A-Gage network, we have instruments out in the field making measurements about every hour or two, initially just of, of CFCs and a selection of other compounds. But now we're measuring about 50 different um, compounds, so all the, all the main CFCs and then a lot of the uh, compounds that have been brought in to wow. replace those, those substances. I mean, I don't know about you, but like when I first sort of got into a bit of this, I did not realise there were that many different ozone depleting substances uh, out there well but yeah they're not all ozone depleting oh, but there's okay. a lot of they're all greenhouse gases pretty, oh, okay. pretty much so so yes yeah, so there's um yeah there's when people think of greenhouse gases and ozone depleting substances they think of carbon dioxide and and cfcs maybe and maybe methane but yeah there's a whole world of um nasty substances yeah. <laughs> out there <laughs> but then i guess so with cfc 11 then it got to a point what when was this 2000 and 14 was it 2013 13 so you there was this increase that was detected so i guess sort of two questions is when did you sort of first learn and hear about when this was increasing and i guess at what point can you actually firmly say yes these concentrations are increasing this isn't some instrument fault or some other influence yeah so okay so the so what you're talking about here is this event that happened between 2013 and 2019, really. Um, so we'd been we'd been watching, as you said, the, the emissions of CFCs dropped, thankfully, uh, starting uh, in the late 80s, mid 90s, um, and as a result, then concentrations had started to decline. Now concentrations don't just fall immediately when emissions fall, because the lifetime of CFCs in the atmosphere is tens or hundreds of years. So thankfully, we are now on this trajectory where concentrations are going down. They're not zero, but they are declining and they'll continue to decline for decades to come. Um, but what, what was noticed um, starting around 2013 was that the, um, the rate at which CFC 11 was declining had slowed. Now, just to take a step back a little, CFC-11 is the second most abundant CFC in the atmosphere. It was mainly used for, for, as a what's called a blowing agent in the manufacture of insulating foams. Okay. Um, and so, so yeah, so it, this wasn't me initially. I mean, I, I came to this relatively late. The, the person who first noticed this happening really was Steve Monsker from, from NOAA, so the okay. National Center for... Uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the US. So Steve had been um, looking at his measurements and had noticed that this rate of decline of CFC-11 had slowed. It wasn't as declining as, as quickly as it was a few years before. So that was one puzzling feature of the data. The other puzzling feature of the data was that the gap between the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere measurements had started to grow a little bit. So you know, this this had started in 2013, 
But I think it was really only around 2016, 17, okay. when, when Steve really became convinced that this was a real feature that, that needed, that was globally significant. And so it was in, I think it was in 2017, maybe early 2017, that um, Steve gave a presentation at the European Geophysical Union, which is a big get-together of climate scientists from all over the world. And he showed he showed this signal in his data, and you know my first thought was, oh my goodness, how come I didn't notice this in the A gauge data? And of course, as soon as we looked at it, it was right there. But for whatever reason, you know, we'd all been worried about other things. I mean, we, we sure, yeah. I guess you kind of got get fifty it. other substances to, to be looking at. So. <laughs> exactly, you kind of get into this mindset. You know, you shouldn't, but you get into this mindset of, oh, you know, CFCs have been going down for couple of decades now they'll just keep going yeah um but thank you know steve was so meticulous about this that um that he noticed something going on um did did his analysis to make sure it was robust and um and then when he was sure that this was happening and that it was globally significant he started to talk about it so that was the point where i got interested and got involved so i um so how were you involved did they approach did steve approach you or did yeah, yeah so so after so after steve gave his presentation at the EGU um, me and him started talking I provided him with some um, model simulations that helped to interpret that data so helped us to put a number on you know what did these trends in the atmospheric concentration mean in terms of the amount of emissions that were happening so we basically we ran the numbers through the model we found that the trends that Steve identified could be responsible for you know something like 20,000 tons per year being emitted to the, into the atmosphere that weren't oh there before. Yeah. So not in substantial amount of, of, of CFC-11 um, making it out there. Now, the reason why this was so surprising was that under the Montreal Protocol, um, the production of CFC-11 had been banned globally since 2010. So this was 2013. You know, we're still expecting to see emissions in, you know, in the real world because... These insulating foams are still in buildings, For you sure. know, in, yeah. in appliances, etc. Um, but what we couldn't get our heads around was why would those emissions suddenly start to increase if no one's producing this anymore for those applications? You know, it's hard course, to yeah. it's hard to think of a mechanism why that would happen. Some people had maybe suggested that you know maybe buildings were being demolished at a higher rate. You know, buildings that had come to the end of their life that were okay. built in the sixties and seventies. Maybe refrigerators were being torn apart, you know, releasing this stuff in their foams. But it's, it all seemed somewhat unlikely. So anyway, so we, so we ran the numbers. Steve wrote this fantastic paper, which came out in, in 2018. Um, and, um, and yeah, and it was, it was a big story, as you would imagine. You know, this was really the biggest um, sign that we'd ever had that... The Montreal Protocol, which until this point had been thought of as being this absolutely fantastically successful environmental treaty, was the first sign that maybe everything wasn't, you know, as as rosy as we thought. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, it was a big it was a big story. It was in you know all the international press, um, television, radio, you know, you name it. So it was um, it was really interesting. Was there anyone at this point do you think, or that you know of, that was disputing? what was being found or was these measurements just so robust that you couldn't yeah there was there was no doubt that these these emissions were growing there was 
that was the thing we were sure about. There were new emissions of CFC-11. We weren't 100% sure about the magnitude because of various technical issues to do with how the atmosphere disperses these gases. You know, there's, there's a possibility that that might have changed a little, which could have contributed to some of the, the change that we saw. Um, but there was no doubt that there were new emissions. Um, w the question, though, was could that be linked to new production? That was more uncertain. Because okay. um, that's what's controlled under the Montreal Protocol is production, not emissions. And as I said, emissions are to do with, you know, the processes like knocking down buildings and stuff like that. Anyway, so 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 there was a bit of a question mark when this about about where this was coming from. That was the main say, one. That must be the big challenge now. Is That's the big one after the 2018 paper. We saw that there was a this global signal. Steve did some um, very novel analysis from a measurement station that he had in Hawaii, um, which showed that it was likely that some of these emissions at least were coming from Eastern Asia, okay. but it wasn't clear how much, and it certainly wasn't clear where in Eastern Asia this might be happening. Um, but a few weeks after this um, this paper came out, this scientific paper, organizations like the New York Times and a, um, an NGO called the Environmental Investigation Agency did some on-the-ground reporting in China, okay. which is the kind of the, the main hub for producing, you know, insulating foams and... and so I guess there products. must have been some inkling then it was around that part of the world then it yeah was just because that's where the the, the industry the is, is based yeah. um and so so and these investigations showed that yes the, the manufacturers apparently admitted to this that they were they had started using cfc 11 again in their products so but then the question was well okay is some of these producers are clearly using this compound again but was that significant? Was it just a couple of rogue, you know, manufacturers who'd restarted their CFC eleven production lines? But really, it couldn't. Yeah. You know, this couldn't really be responsible for tens of thousands of tons per year. You know, that was the. Since two, two or three factories, surely. Exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't really sure. It wasn't really clear how significant these findings were. So that's where we, um, you know, me and uh, colleagues around the world really started to look at this, and we knew that. The measurements that we had through the A-Gauge network could start to answer some of these questions. So the first thing we did um, after Steve's paper was to look at some of the data that we had from Eastern Asia. So there are two measurement stations out there that, um, that measure at relatively high frequency, so about once every couple of hours. So one is in Korea, it's on an island called uh, Jeju Island, and that station is called Gosan. And there's another station uh, on a Japanese island called Hataruma. Um, so that's run by the National Institute for Environmental Sciences in Japan. Um, so we, we started to look at those data in collaboration with our colleagues in Korea and Japan. And it was immediately obvious from that data that there was a new source that had sprung up in oh, Eastern wow. Asia. Okay. And when we ran the analysis, it became very clear that that new source was in northeastern China. Oh, wow. Okay. So go from there then. How, wh what was the next steps, I guess, from a sort of policy point of view then? Like, presumably the Chinese government at this point, were were they aware of what was going on or, com uh, I guess, maybe unaware? Or how, how, how did that sort of dialogue then go towards, well, we've now spotted these factories. We now see there's enormous emissions. Are you 
how are we going to stop this or yeah so the, so the in in policy circles the question after the initial monsker 2018 paper was you know wh where is this coming from and you know we knew that there was some new production happening in china but we didn't know how how much it contributed to the 20,000 tons per year we'd seen um but it had been this had been discussed amongst parties to the Montreal Protocol during 2018, and there was some acknowledgement that this was this was happening in in China. Um, but again, question marks about how much. Yeah. So our paper that came out in in 2019 really showed that this this was a significant source region. So we worked out that about um, half of the global emission rise originated from eastern China. Okay. So pr primarily Hebei and uh, Shandong provinces was what our, in, our measurements seemed to be indicating um, and so yeah that at that point you know there was a a, a broad acknowledgement that you know um, this this region of China was producing a substantial amount of CFC 11 new production was the only yeah. only um, likely reason and it was contributing to substantial emissions and at that point does this then this information presumably gets passed off to policymakers or members of the U UN environmental protection is that right UNEP there's a um, or the um, United Nations Environment Programme Programme that's, a, yeah. that's too, yeah. too many acronyms to I know <laughs> I know um, yeah so so yeah I mean fr from from the moment that Steve's paper came out um you know, one of the positive things about this is that there has been a very close interaction between scientists and the policy folks at UNEP and the national governments. You know, everyone was very keen that there would be, you know, close communication there. That the moment we, you know, were sure about our scientific findings, you know, that we would share them um, and that we would, you know, go to these meetings of the parties to the Montreal Protocol and present our results. Um, okay. So you know, Steve has presented um, many times at these 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 six monthly or annual meetings that they have. Um, I was supposed to go in 2019, but I just had a baby, so I <laughs> had to rule myself out of that one. Um, but yeah, there's been there's been fantastic dialogue, and um, and you know, and that showed because if we're allowed to go forward to the end of the story, yeah, you know. When we, we, we carried on looking at our data, obviously, for the next few years after this, you know, after 2019. And so um, in 2021, uh, we published two more papers. One was an update of, of Steve's initial paper showing that now global emissions had suddenly, really suddenly dropped. So after 2019, emissions had, you know, had gone back down by more than 20,000 tonnes per year, actually. Um, and again, the second paper looked at these regional measurements that we had in Eastern Asia and again showed that about half of that decline that had now happened was mirrored in the decline that we saw from China. So, you know, this was combined with um, reports that we saw in the press of people being, um, you know, prosecuted for producing ozone-depleting substances again. Um, China, The Chinese delegation to the Montreal Protocol gave um, gave some evidence that you know, presented elements, evidence to other parties that they had taken enforcement action, that factories had been demolished, etc. And clearly, you know, we seem to have seen something consistent with that in the atmospheric data. And worked, yeah. It's all it and it's all gone back to nice sort of declines in 
yeah it's, it's difficult so. to you almost said go gone back to normal it's difficult got, yeah. to uh, it's difficult to determine what where we should have been that's one of the big problems that we're still trying to understand here but yes emissions have have dropped they're back now lower than they were in in 2013 so we, we're back on the right track again for sure yeah brilliant Great. okay well thank you very much matt this has been an absolute pleasure uh, pleasure nice thanks. to talk to you